So I'm surprised. You you don't have like a, a prepared rant that you go into at the moment somebody says something like that? Rant is probably not the right word, but... Oh, it's a rant. I'm sure. Oh, it's a rant. A hundred percent a rant. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by how to behave in an office setting. It's been... 18 months. Are you both back in the office? Your offices? I'm in my apartment. I work in the hospital, so. Okay, so I, I went back to my office two weeks ago, and I am so confused as to how to, like, behave. Apparently, like, you're supposed to greet people when you pass them in the hallways and say hello. I, I'm just trying to figure this out, but it is a, a wild new world we're all moving back into. So I I wish you all the, the best of luck when you go through this. So... Welcome back, everyone. I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health at the Boston University's School of Public Health. And I am here again with two summer summertime guests in September. So this is we're finishing off our summertime guest series, but we are actually in September. So but I'm told that summer actually goes through the end of September. So I think we're we're still technically in summer. Does that ring any bells? That sounds right. Yeah, I'm going to go with that. I'm going to go with that. So our, our first guest is Dr. Michelle Kunka from the University of California at San Francisco, UCSF. Welcome to the podcast, Michelle. Thank you. So nice to be here. And our second guest is Dr. Sarah Ackley, also from the UCSF system, from UCSF. I was going to say the UC system, but UCSF. Welcome to the podcast, Sarah. Thank you. So glad to have you both here. And as a reminder to our listeners, if you could head on over to the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org, that's BU's hub for lifelong learning. Nick, I'm going to start pretending that that that's our sponsor for the show, so I can actually pretend we actually have sponsors, and I don't have to do you know, Don pretending that we're sponsored by ZipRecruiter or something like that. So there are there. I'm going to say they're our sponsor, and it, we they would love it if you'd go over to their to the website where you can find lots of public health programs and tools. And also as a reminder, if you could go on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever your favorite podcast app is and give us a rating. We haven't had a rating in a while or, or a a review in a while. And those always make us happy and we read them on air. So if you could do that, we will be very happy. So now onto the show. So today in our first segment, which is our journal club segment, we're going to look at a study on a new treatment for migraines. And then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we'll talk about stitching together multiple data sets for life course analysis. That's my interpretation of what is what I'm going to call it is stitching together of data sets. I don't know if that's an accurate representation. And then in our final segment, which is our amazing and amusing, we'll get into some things that we are just happy to talk about. So we will start off in segment one. So we're looking at an article this week that looked at migraine, treatment for migraines. It was published in JAMA, and it was entitled Effects of Intravenous, and here's where, Michelle, you're going to have to help out. I need a, a doctor on this. Ep, eptinezumab? Does that, am I even close? Sarah and I were trying to figure this out. Too. <laughs> I, I listened to um, some recordings last night, and hopefully I remembered this right, but yeah, eptinezumab. 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 Yeah. <laughs> It, I, you can you can go to old episodes of this 
this program and I have I have destroyed the name of pretty much every single drug that we've ever talked about. So it, it's not too surprising. Anyway, eptinezumab versus placebo on headache pain and most bothersome symptom when initiated during a migraine attack, a randomized clinical trial by first author Paul Winner from the Palm Beach Headache Center in West Palm Beach, Florida. So here are some a couple of headlines that this one got. So MedPage today says migraine prevention drug shows rapid benefits during attack. Health Day says eptimnesumab speeds pain symptom relief from migraine attack. I think that means pain relief. It doesn't speed pain, but you know, the, the comma in there kind of confused me. Oh my gosh. And then two minute medicine says intravenous eptimnesumab associated with a more rapid onset and prolongation of symptom relief from acute migraines versus placebo. So, Sarah, would you mind starting us off and just talking us through what they, they did in this study? Yeah, sounds great. I think this article was absolutely fascinating for reasons around why studies are done and how drugs get approved and why. And randomized controlled trials of new drugs is a topic that Michelle and I have been texting a lot about over the last couple months around the mm-hmm. approval of a different MAB drug. So one I think that, one that we talked about on on the podcast earlier. Yeah, lots of aducanumab. Do I have that yes, right? Yes. Yes. See, I can't say these things. Go ahead. It's, I, the antibody drugs are really challenging. I think mm-hmm. it's it's uh, there's there's just something about the the combination of letters that I find particularly hard. Yep. So I think it's really fun to talk about some of these ideas around trials and approval of new drugs in a different context. So as you said, this paper addresses the question of whether eptinezumab is an effective treatment for migraine. But let me start with a little bit of background and context that I researched yesterday. So first, maybe a definition of what migraine is. So for those of you who don't know, and Michelle here is the medical doctor, so she might have more to say. Migraine is a diagnosis for a recurrent headache that may or may not go along with a laundry list of other symptoms. And this study looked at headache along with nausea and light and sound sensitivity. And migraine is a reasonably common condition and more common among women. So eptinezumab, the drug examined in this study, is a CGRP monoclonal antibody drug, and it's one of four recently approved antibody drugs that work by this or a very similar mechanism. Eptinezumab was the last of these four drugs to be approved in February of 2020, and the other three were approved in 2018. So this drug was sort of later to the game. So a big advantage of antibody drugs as a class is greater target specificity than sort of the the small molecule drugs we already have available. And I think this has the certainly has the potential to improve treatment and can be used to learn more about disease mechanisms, both at the population level and at the individual level. But I see as a big drawback of antibody drugs is that they're really not cheap for patients. And of course, as is true with any new drug, it may not be better or safer than an older agent. And so I looked it up yesterday, and it looks like this drug would cost about $7,000. And that's not even including the sort of clinic or administration costs. So I don't know what the total bill would look like. Maybe something on the order of $10,000. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I feel like that's some important context here. You're sort of like how— I think it's really important, yeah. Yeah, like how do we compare a treatment that's on the order of, what, dollars to something that's thousands of dollars? and, and, And when and why would that be justified? So compared to to the other and older drugs, antibody drugs uh, have a longer half-life on the order of several weeks. 
And this makes them potentially good for preventing migraines before they happen because the drug is hanging around in your system and you don't need to remember to regularly take a medication. And I think the, the important thing to remember here is the prevention of migraine is what all four of these drugs, including eptinezumab, have already been approved for. Mm-hmm. So that brings us to this study, which evaluates eptinezumab for a different purpose, which is the acute treatment of a headache that is already happening, which is different from its currently approved use. So given that this is an IV drug, I'm imagining its use would look something like you show up in the ER with a severe headache and then you could be administered this drug. This isn't something that you could administer yourself at home. And maybe maybe Michelle, as the clinician here, can tell us a bit more about some plausible clinical scenarios or whether there really are any plausible clinical scenarios. So now, sort of more getting into the paper, I'm looking at the first page of the paper. And with this sort of randomized trial of a new drug, I like to start with the byline and the conflicts of interest. And the first thing we'll notice is that the corresponding author is associated with the Lundbeck La Jolla Research Center. If we scroll down to the conflicts of interest, we see that the authors receive funding from Lundbeck. And this isn't a coincidence because the drug is made by Lundbeck and this study was sponsored and funded by this company. They also were involved in the preparation of the manuscript. So this doesn't speak directly to whether this research is good, but I do think it's important to keep conflicts of interest in mind in this context. Agreed. So getting into the methods, the first thing I wanted to point out is about when this study was done. The study started on November 4th, 2019. And uh, this drug was approved for prevention of headache in February of 2020. So this study was started probably when its approval process for prevention was already underway. So I'm, I'm just speculating here, and maybe you all know more, is that I think that I would see this study as intended to have this drug approved for multiple indications or extend the usage beyond the indication that it was already in process to be approved for. So otherwise, I think this is a pretty run-of-the-mill RCT. The treatments are the drug eptinezumab versus an IV placebo. The two primary endpoints are time to relief from headache and time to relief from most bothersome symptom. The secondary endpoints are whether there's been symptom relief at two and four hours and whether an additional medication was needed to be used within a day. There were 480 people in the trial, about half in each group, so I'd call this a moderately sized trial. In terms of the study participants, which is a a topic Michelle and I have chatted about, close to 90% of the trial participants are women, which I would see as a reflection of who gets more migraine. Mm -hmm. Maybe Michelle can comment more on what she sees in the clinic. And then the trial is mostly close to 90% again, non-Latino white, which is, I think, a very common thing we see in drug trials that we mostly have white participants. So now in terms of the results, there are some hazard ratios presented for time to relief and some odds ratios for relief at two and four hours for treatment versus placebo. And I would say we see a consistent and statistically significant pattern of modest reductions in time to relief with both our primary and secondary endpoints. So in addition to its already established efficacy for preventing migraines, the authors conclude that this drug works as a treatment for a headache that is already happening. But looking a little more carefully at the results, I think we want to think about not just the hazards and the odds ratios and whether they're significant, but also the clinical significance. And there are some lovely Kaplan-Meier plots 
in the results that show that at four hours, the placebo group has about two-thirds the probability of symptom resolution. So I think this is worth keeping in mind when we're thinking about efficacy versus safety trade-offs. An interesting thing to note here is that in a trial with such short follow-up, there's not much opportunity for loss to follow-up. However, uh, individuals who used a rescue medication that is a different medication to treat migraine were censored and thus excluded from plots and then censored in analyses. So this was a pretty small number, though, so I'm not too worried about it. In terms of adverse events, total events are about the same in both groups. I'm hoping Michelle can say a bit more about hypersensitivity. This occurred only in the treatment group and seems to be a term for allergic reaction. This is a common adverse event for antibody drugs. I'll also note that a couple of the adverse events listed are probably also symptoms of migraine. So that for a drug that works, we would get these symptoms or adverse events differentially counted for the placebo arm. And then they get into a little bit of discussion for further research. They write, feasibility of administering eptinezumab treatment during a migraine attack in comparison with alternative treatments remains to be established. And I would say this is where a lot of my questions and criticisms of this work came up. I guess the big one I have is that this is a common condition. So how is an IV administered drug useful here? And how does this compare both in terms of safety and efficacy to other available treatments that can be taken orally and are less than $7,000? And I briefly looked and didn't see any head-to-head trials of these drugs with older agents for the treatment of acute headache. Their take on this issue, which I'm pulling from the last paragraph of the discussion, is that someone who wanted to prevent migraines and not just treat headaches as they were happening could get a sort of two-for-one approach when initiating this drug. But as they admit, it's not totally clear when that would be feasible in general. So that's it for my summary. Awesome. So that is a fantastic summary of what they did. And I just want to emphasize a term that you used, which was you said this is sort of kind of your basically run-of-the-mill randomized trial. And I, it's funny because I, I didn't write the exact same thing, but, you know, in my notes, I sort of like, you know, th- this, this like feels, I don't know, easy isn't the word because no trial, running a trial is never easy. But it just sort of felt like, I don't know, this, you know, short time period, basic, you know, individual level randomization, like they, they, it definitely felt to me like they had a lot of things going for them that, that you know, certainly contributes towards, the ability to feel like their results are are valid. It's only part of the picture, but... So, Michelle, what about you? When you read this study, did anything stand out to you that was of interest? Do you, do you buy the results? Do you think this is something we should be recommending as standard treatment for those with migraines in general? I mean, I think Sarah pointed out some of the things that I'm... that I also was worried about when I read the study, which is, you know, why an IV drug for the quote unquote abortive therapy of migraine. I think that's what most clinicians would call trying to stop a migraine that's already happening. To me, you know, and I think, Sarah, your point about a patient coming into the emergency room for an acute migraine that's refractory or not, you know, for me, I would imagine that someone would come in they they into the ED, they tell me that they have this migraine. My immediate questions are, do you have a history? And is it worse or different than what you usually experience if you do have a history? And then if it is worse, 
you know, in the e, it's not just enough for the clinician to say, you have a history, I'm going to give you an abortive therapy for migraine. If it's worse or different, they're getting a scan. They're getting scanned because we worry in that acute moment of things that are really, really bad, like a, like a bleed, for example, in the brain. So it's not, it's not benign for someone to go to the ED for something like this. Like they're going to be worked up for every possible worst case scenario that they present with. And I don't really understand why an IV treatment for abortive therapy would be done when there's, like Sarah said, oral medications that are pretty effective from what I read. And I'm not a migraine or headache specialist, but, you know, that was my first thing. Like, why is this really clinically useful? And if it is, I would want it compared to current, currently cheaper and easier to take abortive therapies, not just basically normal saline that they used as their placebo. So uh, so let, let me let me ask a little bit more about that, because, you know, from a Statistical standpoint, it seems to me they have they have demonstrated that their treatment is is a benefit over you know a placebo. But but as you say, there there are other treatments available. So I, I it was a little strange to me that you would be comparing to placebo. But but more than that, when I look at the results, you've got time to freedom from headache pain. And absolutely there's there's a a benefit, but it doesn't. It doesn't look to me like a, a a huge benefit. And as you say, you're comparing to a, a placebo, not to another treatment. You know, given the given the costs, it does seem to me this is, you know, you you'd really want a, a quite a large benefit. And I don't I don't see that here. Am I am I missing anything? I don't think so. I I read the same. I mean, I I, I had the same conclusion. And to me, you know, you can, there are situations clinically where patients go home with a line, an eye, like an intravenous line of some kind, and those situations are limited. Like if they mm-hmm. need long-term IV antibiotics, for example, for like a relatively serious infection, and that's their only problem. Or if they are receiving chemotherapy outpatient and they have to have a line in because that certain therapies, you know, intravenous. But for migraine, I, I, you know, to me, it would be more interesting to think about an IV drug for a refractory, in a refractory case. And I think for that clinical question, you have to compare it to other, either other abortive therapies that are orally, you know, taken or other IV therapies, which also are given in the refractory case. I don't know if Sarah has any thoughts on that, too. Yeah, I mean, I, I think... I just I think both of you already said this, but I think I I struggle to see the value in a seven thousand dollar drug to treat migraine when it doesn't seem I mean the 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 results don't seem very clinically compelling. And I think that's I think that's separate from whether this is a good drug for preventing migraine. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so that's it's not that's not to say that this isn't a good or useful drug, but in this context, it does it does seem its use case is not very clear. Yeah, I, I mean, part of me wondered, is the reason for this because you've got a, a drug that's expensive? We we don't know that it's always going to be this expensive, but you know, given the kind of treatment it is, I suspect it's going to be fairly expensive for a while. And as you say, that's just the drug cost. That's not the the cost of actually you know 
being in the hospital to, to get this administered. But, you know, maybe if the, the benefits were really dramatic, I mean, you, you, you tried this and it, you know, just much, much shorter time to resolution of, of symptoms, then it, then it might be worth it. But it like, I can't think of a reason why that would be biologically expected. And certainly their power calculations to justify this trial didn't, didn't expect that. So it's, you know, it's a, that, that part of it was a little bit of a, a, a mystery to me. I do take your point, though. I mean, it's worth emphasizing that doesn't mean it's not a, a useful drug in other contexts. It's just sort of in this one, it doesn't necessarily seem like it's adding up. So I guess in terms of in terms of why they did this trial, and I don't I don't necessarily know enough about the whole drug approval process to comment on this, but there were three previously approved drugs that are also antibody drugs and worked by a similar mechanism. So I wonder if this was, you know, this trial was planned before eptinezumab was approved uh, or that approval process was underway. And it was, this was either a way to maybe get it approved for a different indication if it wasn't as effective as these other agents for prevention of migraine or a way to sort of extend its use beyond prevention. Because I think there are, there are these other three drugs that are very similar. And so I don't know why as a clinician you'd use this antibody drug versus another one. So that was kind of my thought. That was my only thought there in terms of why they did this trial. Mm-hmm. So another thing that, that was interesting to me about this study, and this is probably the only place where it deviated in my mind from the sort of simple, straightforward randomized trial, was that they they had co-primary endpoints for this trial, which is not something that I'm you know used to seeing. This, I can't, there's not nothing wrong, per se, with having a co-primary endpoint as long as you deal with it appropriately statistically and, and from what I'm can tell they they certainly accounted for it. I can't say whether they did it perfectly correct, but I'm, you know, I'm not one of those who gets overly concerned about issues of perfect statistical significance and things like that. But so I, it just surprised me. I mean, you the only way I would worry about it is if you're sort of saying like, well, let's give ourselves two endpoints so that you know we get two shots at this, as long as it does fine on one of them. But it it didn't seem like that was their approach. So it's not that I have any specific issue with it, but I, I I don't see that very often. I don't know if that's something that you all are more familiar with. I was going to ask Sarah that, actually, because I think Sarah has more experience with clinical trials than I do. I, I'm sort of like an observational epi through and through, but to me, I guess my, my guess would be that, you know, migraine is really defined as, as headache, but also other things. Usually, yeah. like, you know, photophobia or phonophobia, i.e. like lights and sounds are really bothersome to the patient. They could have other things too. So to me, I'm like, well, I'm glad that they looked at what is subjectively more bothersome for the patient. I guess I was happy about that. I just didn't know statistically, you know, what that meant in terms of having two primary endpoints. Like what if one of them wasn't significant? I don't know. I just, I just feel like I don't know enough about trial analysis to, but it was weird to me too. And I wanted to ask about it. I mean, I think it was compelling that they had consistency across these two endpoints, but I've definitely seen contexts where you have, you have multiple outcomes that you're looking at and you see signal for one and not the other. And that's where I think interpretation gets really tricky. Like, is this something where 
we've, you know, we've just looked at this enough different ways that we've happened to come across something significant, or is this a real signal? And I guess my other thought is I do think we need to think carefully about our outcomes for trials. Something I noticed with some of the early trials for COVID drugs was that their outcome was timed to symptom improvement versus Mm -hmm. something like mortality or were you sent home from the hospital. And so sometimes we'd see significant signal for these sort of time to event outcomes, but not for the things we really care about. Like, did you survive? So I do, I do, I do struggle here with what the, what the best endpoint would be. I mean, for this particular trial, I'm not worried because we did see consistency, but in a situation where you might not have consistency, you want your endpoint to be what's most meaningful and most, most important. It, it's such an interesting point because I, I, I was thinking about this as well, that you could say this is a these are subjective outcomes. I mean, time to freedom from headache pain and time to resolution of of most bothersome symptoms. You could say those are those are subjective, right? And so therefore, they could be influenced by your belief in whether or not you're getting you know an effective therapy. On the other hand, like it seems to me that's it's the relevant outcome because you know this is not something, as far as I know, that leads to long term severe. Other, you know, other clinical concerns, I, I do know that migraines are associated with cardiovascular disease, but I mean, the, the actual headaches themselves, I don't think are, are leading to, you know, you know, death or anything like that. And so w- what matters, you're getting the treatment, so you feel better. And if you feel better, you know, that's like, does it matter if it's subjective? I assume, I, I assume in this case, it, it really doesn't. I would say no. I think this brings up another issue, which is that I think people do report differences when they can tell that they're getting a drug. So the the person administering the drug may be blinded to whether you're getting the treatment or placebo, but I would imagine that you can tell if you're getting saline versus an antibody drug. Is that true? I mean, I guess I have no experience with this that I would know. Like, what is the what is it that you would feel that would be different? I don't imagine there would be. You could easily, I mean, you're just, I mean, you're just standing, you're sitting there, supposedly, with like a little, like, pole with a bag hanging and a line in. They can't see this, but you're doing fantastic uh, miming this. (laughs) But, I mean, they could cover that bag of whatever saline really, you know, really easily. I think it would be easy to, I think it would be easy to blind, to blind the study, relatively speaking. What if you're one of the five people who has one of these hypersensitivity reactions that's not so severe that you stop treatment? So that you think that they would know that they got the treatment? Just looking at some of the adverse events, there are, there are a few that we see in both groups, but then there are a number of adverse events that we see really only in the treatment group and they're, they're mild. So I wonder, if, I wonder if there's some way you can sense, like, I feel different on this drug. I think that's a fair point, but if if the treatment is increasing adverse events, you would think that would sort of count against the, like you would be less likely to report I'm feeling better if you're experiencing an adverse event that you believe is associated with getting the antibody treatment. I don't, I don't know that's true, but I'm just, that would be my, my, my prior going into it. But yeah, hard to say. All right. Any any last thoughts anyone wants to raise before we move on? I think just to finish off the point about endpoints, I think clinically treating migraine is 
is treating the patient's reported pain. So I think it goes back to this desire for biomarkers, you know, that are quote unquote more objective. And I think, you know, in me and Sarah's field for Alzheimer's disease, this has been such a hot topic, but, you know, I don't know that there are biomarkers for migraine, but ultimately for a lot of neuro diseases, the the subjective reports from the patient are really what matter. Like I that's don't. That's what matters. That's yeah. totally what matters. I don't really care about anything else other than if their pain subjectively goes away. And pain is always subjective. That's I mean, so we really do in in a way that, that it's a patient centered thing. We we titrate everything based on that in in this in this situation. So for me, it makes sense and. Maybe there's some subjectivity to it, but I think clinically, this is what we would do. Yeah, I I completely agree on that one. So before we move on, I just wanted to comment on something from the abstract, which I found strange, or not strange, but something I just haven't seen in a while and and is, is definitely not my preference, which is if you look at the results, they report the initial hazard ratios with p values and no confidence intervals. And I, I was just so surprised to see that in a in a JAMA article. That if you go down to the like the odds ratios, then they do provide them, but don't provide them for those initial hazard ratios. Just seemed kind of strange to me. That bugged me too. Yeah. The other thing, and this is this is like just a one of those questions that I had. There's no issue one way or the other. But this study was done in did I get this right? This was done in the United States and in the country of Georgia. I don't know what that was about. Why? I mean, so like typically when I see studies like that, my assumption is there's just some kind of a relationship between the, you know, the PI and one and somebody PI in in Georgia or something like that. So nothing wrong with it, but like it it stands out as as just sort of an interesting thing. And you do wonder, like, will this treatment be as available in Georgia as it will be in the United States? I, I have no I have no answer to that question, so it may be that it is, but I, you know, makes you wonder. And I know we didn't talk about this for the study, but trials just really confuse me in terms of recruitment and selection. I'm kind of a like selection bias is like my favorite thing to talk about mm-hmm. in Epi, but I just don't understand really. You know, for me, like usually when I I work with a faculty member who's like, I work on a clinical trial or I'm recruiting from my site, I'm like, oh, they're like, how do you choose? Like, how are you recruiting patients and then how do you choose or, you know, who gets this opportunity? And I feel like there's just so much weird selection in trials and it's very confusing and I don't really have an answer, but I just wanted to throw it out there. No, I I would totally agree with you. I mean, I don't think it's an issue of selection bias per se, unless you're thinking of that in terms of like uh, external validity, in which case I would agree. But I, I, I think it, it absolutely affects the, the you know, who you can transport these results to or who you can generalize these results to. And, and it matters a lot because the populations and trials are very different from the populations of patients who are ultimately going to experience those treatments. So it's a big issue. I think there's I think there's some desire to reduce variance because then you'll have more power. And I think so I don't think that we should necessarily have population representative samples and trials, but on the flip side, the study was done in 90% non-Latino whites, 90% women, 
do we want to extend those results to other groups of people? And I think we should be thoughtful about what types of diversity or variability are important in a trial and what types are not important. And I think we've, we've really landed on the side of, unfortunately, I think trials are really homogeneous populations that aren't representative of who will be getting the treatment. Completely agree. Completely agree. And something to something we should probably come back to as a, a topic two in the future. But for the moment, we are going to switch to a different topic two, which is a, a, it came from an article that was in the American Journal of Epidemiology. And the article looks at this idea of life course epidemiology and you know, life course. And the article was entitled Combining Longitudinal Data from Different Cohorts to Examine the Life Course Trajectory by Rachel Hughes, Kate Tilling and Deborah Lawler. And they, they get into this idea that life course epidemiology, which I have to admit is something that I have always struggled to figure out the boundaries on. But I think of it as, and I'll, I'll sort of go with what they say in the, in the paper, is life course epidemiology is when we're trying to figure out biological, behavioral, or, or psychosocial processes that operate across an individual's life course to influence the development of disease risk. So I think of it as, like, can we study processes and, and exposures that are happening over long periods of time and may have extended periods in which they are having effects. So you could have exposures in childhood that lead to effects much, much later in life or, you know, any combination. And, you know, really try to figure out that's if you're going to really tease out the effects of things over the course of an entire life, you're going to have to in some ways, think about, you know, can we do cohort studies of patients for 100 years? And is that really feasible? And can we wait that long for answers and all of those things? And so we have to think very carefully about how we try to answer life course questions. And I'm, I'm not going to do it justice, but they provide an example and they talk about a strategy where essentially you could take a, a, a bunch of different data sets that sort of overlap and stitch them together to try to answer questions across the life course. And so they provide this particular example where they're looking at the associations of sex, ethnicity, and parental education on weight trajectories from birth to 20 years. And in the process, they talk about five, essentially five challenges in trying to put these data sets together. One is data harmonization. How do we bring these data sets together consistently? How do we account for the dependence structure of the data, you know, really sort of statistical issues? How do we model selection across multiple studies so the populations who are selected into these studies is, can be different, and how do we account for that? And then how do we account for missing outcome data, and how do we account for missing covariate data? I, you know, I think of the last two as issues we kind of have to deal with in, in lots of different studies, although the challenges here are kind of unique, but, but and, you know, Challenge one, data harmonization is something that I think there's, we have a lot of experience dealing with, not necessarily in stitching together data sets across the lifespan, but in stitching together cohorts that are coming together to, to pool data. We have lots of experience with that. But, you know, accounting for these, these dependent structures and, and modeling the selection across multiple studies do seem like fairly unique challenges. So I, I have some specific questions, but just before I, I get into them, Michelle, I'll start with you. What was your reaction to this as a, as a concept? I mean, I think this is something that I'm seeing a lot more in my own field 
in like AD Alzheimer's disease work and biomarker work, especially since there's so many cohorts that are that have, for example, like I usually work with neuroimaging data and there's always this question of, you know, midlife or early life exposures. I think it's super challenging. Um, and they kind of address this, but I also would be concerned. I think another issue that I would be concerned about would be measurement mm-hmm. bias and trying to make measurement of different constructs concordant. I mean, it's less of an issue with things that are more objective, like blood pressure, BMI, et cetera. But when I'm thinking of my outcome of interest, which is usually like cognitive decline, that's already a complex construct that's measured Mm -hmm. by so many different things. And I feel like we can borrow from fields like psychology that really care. I mean, we care about measurement, obviously, but I feel like we're not as hip to all these sort of ways that we can address measurement error and also combine different measures that are, that, you know, may not be concordant. I had a colleague in PhD who did integrative data analysis. He was an epi, but he really borrowed from the psych literature. So I feel like data harmonization and combining cohorts can also be a really nice opportunity to do interdisciplinary work and really try to leverage and learn from colleagues who also work with data, just not necessarily, not from like our perspective or our traditional training. I like, I like the psych, I like psychology and, and psych methods for that reason. So that was one other issue that I thought, oh, I would worry about this if I was combining a bunch of data sets across time. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Those are those were on my mind as well. Sarah, how about you? Is this something that you think is is the way of the future? Yeah, on the one hand, I think this sort of effort is really important because we do have these different cohorts and it is important to think about whether the results we're getting in them are consistent across cohorts. And they're, you know, they're focused on sort of stitching together these different age groups. And I think there are sort of other other axes along which we could also think about stitching things together. So I think that this sort of effort is really important. And I think sometimes our cohort studies are either sort of too small or too limited in terms of age or other characteristics to really draw the types of inferences that we want to draw. And so we do need to find ways to be sort of looking at all of the data in aggregate. And this is really important in terms of what kinds of trials we do, because I think there have been, again, in my field of work in Alzheimer's disease, there have been a lot of trials, things like targeting hypertension, where we really thought from the observational data we would see something, and then the results have been more modest than expected. So I think I think this sort of thing is is really, really important in terms of guiding what trials we do, also in terms of informing policy. We really want to be leveraging all the data that we can be. That said, I think the the devil is in the details, and I think there are a lot of challenges in terms of stitching these things together and assumptions that might go into it, which we could talk about specifically in this context, that may or may not be correct. And I, I would want to make sure that sort of any results or conclusions that we draw from this sort of data aggregation process are robust to those assumptions that we're making. And can you say a little more? Because you, you said there, you know, you, there are challenges you see that are unique here. What do you see as the the really unique things about a situation like this that we would have to account for? Well, what I what I saw here is that these cohorts 
started, I'm just trying to pull up the figure, but these cohorts started in very, very different times. And they had this statement that they were, they assumed homogeneity across these, or at least some degree of homogeneity across these cohorts. And I think there are people born as early as 1930 and then people born decades later. And assuming homogeneity across that type of time span, when we know that there were you know, lots of things going on in the world that might have affected these cohorts differently. That seems that seems like a hard assumption to me. And I, th- I think it's one that could have been tested. So I don't think that I don't think that all is lost, but I think there were there were places of overlap where we could test some of these assumptions that we're making. I completely agree. I, I, I wonder, you know, the example that they use, as we said, that where they're stitching together, they're they're bring, uh, bringing together these these cohorts, five different cohorts to look at things like sex, ethnicity, and parental education and weight trajectories. I mean, that, you know, I think it's fantastic. But the question is, is this a situation where it's 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 more set up to succeed than in other questions we might want to ask? Because there is a lot of data available for this. Weight is, you know, uh, something that is fairly, fairly standardized in how we, we measure, you know, uh, Sex and and ethnicity and parental education don't tend to change very much. Like there's, it feels to me like there's a lot going for this. You know, if we want to study like environmental exposures, which are going to change over time, we'd have to be able to get the information on. Like it, 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 those kinds of questions seem to me like they could could get much harder. Uh, Michelle, do you see, you know, going forward that we're going to be able to to use this for lots of different questions, or do you think this is a a fairly niche type thing? I don't think it's niche. I mean, I think non-communicable diseases are a huge public health burden. And from a public health standpoint, we do need to know what targets throughout the life course we should be looking at Mm -hmm. to design interventions. I think it's super, it's something, I view it as like something that's very challenging, but worth trying to figure out because also, you know, we have a lot of data now. I think Epi is so uh, such an interesting field, and I find that a lot of people are trying to get into it because there's so much data, and I think stuff like this can actually help not just advance the science, but also reduce the burden on participants. Like, we don't really think about how much of a burden it is on communities for us to be constantly doing research and all this stuff. So just coming from, like, a community or patient-centered perspective— I think there's a lot of methodological things we can do, even in the trial space, too, with, you know, with all the experts in trial emulation and all that stuff, where we could answer some questions without imposing even more so on communities. Not that they don't deserve to have research be done within them, but I think, you know, there is some there is some sort of I think there is an ethical perspective that we don't always talk about when we think about data. There's just so much out there that we could be leveraging and especially in clinical research. I just don't, I think a lot of people are like, oh, I want to do this research. I want to submit this IRB and like all this stuff. And I'm like, the data is out there. We just need to maybe be a little bit more advanced in that method, but it is not easy, especially across the life course and imputing data. You know, you're not only, you're not only stacking it, right? You're yeah, you're, I think stitching it, it visually is like nice for me. I mean, you're taking data maybe from one cohort that's earlier, right, in the life course and one that's 
later and it's like how do you impute that that's scary to me like imputing earlier data for like a mid middle age cohort for example i still don't i don't understand it i've seen people do it but i i, I need help and education on that because i want i would want to know how again like sarah said how those assumptions what assumptions are made and how they're tested Oh yeah, fair. And I think that's a a fair point. I mean, in, in the question that they were looking at, the the when I say stitching together, what I really mean is, several of the cohorts that they looked at were were starting at birth essentially, but a few of the cohorts started with uh, kids who I think were eight, uh, seven to eleven years. I forget what the the second one was. So the, so you've got different you know schedules on which kids are getting measures, different age ages at which they're they're starting, and so you're trying to stitch all that information together. And, you know, this is a relatively short time period in the sense of, you know, it's 20, you know, you're talking about the 20 years of life. But if we wanted to look at, you know, the, the entire lifespan, then you you got to have even more assumptions built in. And my, my, my only worry, and I, I don't mean this in any way to say we shouldn't be doing this, we should absolutely be doing this. But my only worry is, you know, we have a hard enough time when we have a single well-followed, you know, cohort with standardized measurements at getting at cause and effect, you know, try to do it in these even more complicated scenarios, it just seems to me you're adding on layers of, of challenge. That's, you know, that's the reality of the situation and that's fine. But I just, I think we have to go in eyes wide open. I think one of the big challenges in this context is what do you do if your confounders, for example, are measured slightly differently? So like you could imagine one study would say, how many days a week did you get at least 10 minutes of exercise? And another study says, how many days a week did you get at least 20 minutes of exercise? And you have to make some sort of assumption about how exercise affects your outcome and how to translate between at least 10 minutes and at least 20 minutes and those assumptions could affect the the results you get after you merge these cohorts. I completely agree. I, just to, just to clarify, we're supposed to get more than ten minutes of exercise in a week. I know it's really hard. <laughs> Is that true? Uh, I didn't know that. <laughs> uh, any last thoughts about this one before we before we move on? I think this is it's a really fascinating idea, and I'm I'm excited to see more of it. I just have some hesitation. I agree. Yeah. I'm going to assume no no other thoughts. So let's let's move on to our last segment, which is our amazing and amusing, where we just talk about some things that that interested us and either captured our imagination or amused us enough that we wanted to talk about it. Sarah, why don't I, I start with you? What's uh, what do you, what do you want to talk about? So I guess I something I'm wondering about is now that we have all of these rapid tests available and they cost about 10 to $12 a test. How do, what do people think about using them and when you should use them? And I, I went out and bought a few boxes and I haven't used very many and I'm trying to, I'm trying to think about this problem. So I, it's a, it's a fantastic question because, you know, you, I, I certainly hear of cases where people are talking about using them for scenarios where you're going to have a get together Everybody is vaccinated, but you still want that extra level of, you know, just to make sure everyone, you know, no one has COVID. And that's, you know, that that's fine. That makes sense to me if that's what you want to do. But, you know, sort of thinking about like population level interventions and pop, you know, public health, like just seems to me that is not really a, a, a good use of uh, of how we want to target resources. And it's a it seems to me a symptom of the fact that we have a, you know, a, a 
healthcare system that people are pretty much left to their own. And, you know, those who have better access get, you know, better ability to, to prevent things like COVID. And so I, 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 I'm thrilled that these tests exist and are available, but at like a $10 a pop or whatever they are, it just seemed to me like there's, there's limited access. I don't know if you all have the same reaction. Yeah, my th- my thought is that these tests should have cost less than one dollar. There's no reason they shouldn't. And if they test less than one dollar, I really like uh, some of Michael Mina's stuff about how you should just you should just test every day. And if you test positive, you stay home. And if the next day you test negative, you go out. And I think that that's that's a really great model. And I think that there's some good evidence that that would work. But I don't know that it's feasible for most people to be spending seventy dollars a week, which comes out to it comes out to you know hundreds of dollars every month on tests. So, so what, what do we do with sort of a test that's too expensive to use every day, but, but available? And I, I'm not, I have no answers. Yeah. You wonder if, you know, would weekly, you know, would weekly testing be, you know, it's not, it's not daily. It's not, you know, going to miss some stuff, but you're, you're increasing the probability of, of picking up infections that otherwise wouldn't have gotten picked up. I don't know if that's going to make a, a, a difference or not, but it's, it's a fascinating question. Fantastic question. So let's move on, Michelle. What what do you want to talk about? I I am just finishing off my third month of intern year, which is your first year of residency, and I've been very amused slash interested in how clinicians view and understand epidemiology. Okay. And okay. I I think there's a general. I this is a generalization, but. There's a general sense that epi is like a set of tools, like a set, and to some extent it is, I guess, like it's just, you know, case control studies, cohort, RCT, triangle, and less so an understanding that it's a set of, like a different set of research questions. Like there are research questions that you can answer with epi that you can't answer at the bench. But I've heard things, you know, like epi can only be hypothesis generating. And I'm like clutching my pearls during rounds. Like I better hold my tongue because (laughs) that's like not true. (laughs) And I'm tired and cranky. So I'll just be quiet (laughs) and not talk about my feelings. So I'm surprised you you don't have like a, a prepared rant that you go into at the moment somebody says something like that. I do, but I have rant to hold myself. Right word, but... Oh, it's a rant. I'm sure. Oh, it's a rant. A hundred percent a rant. But I have to control myself just because, you know, it's 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 not I don't know, it's very interesting how people view Epi, how people cite, you know, I think especially at academic medical centers, like evidence based medicine, how they cite trials during rounds and it's weird that they cite estimates with to me without like the like you know confidence intervals and all this all, the interpretation is so quick and dirty and it kind of has to be in a sense but also I don't know I struggle with it as an epi I'm just like oh god what what, what are we doing <laughs> so this is a really interesting question so you like there are plenty of it, 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 that I encounter plenty of MDs doctors who have also have an MPH but that's I'm going to run into a select group. So what proportion of doctors that you see in the hospital do you th- would also have an MPH? Not a, not a lot. Not and a lot. 
I don't know. I feel like doctors who get an MPH, the, the, what they do with it is, I mean, I guess in general, what they do with it is so varied. I mean, they could yeah, yeah, yeah. be administrative versus like, you know, an epidemiologist, like, or, you know, in other contexts too. So it's, it's varied, maybe one in every 10. I don't know. And, and I mean, you have a, you have a, a PhD, so you have a perspective that is very different, presumably from almost everyone else that you are working with. You know, do you feel like when, you know, that people understand epi methods enough to be able to read the literature? Because presumably the key thing you need to be able to do is understand the literature well enough to be able to to figure out what's good science and what isn't good science. Do, do people that you work with have that skill? Maybe I shouldn't ask this. <laughs> no, I, I, it's something that I ask too. I mean, I think, you know, it, I, there is a, maybe like a, maybe basic method, like statistical methods, maybe like, mm-hmm. for example, like DAG think, not that DAG thinking is the end all be all. I find it useful. I know there's a lot of debate among our, you know, epi Twitter, hashtag epi Twitter, but, but, like for example, that is is just has not reached the clinical realm in my experience, or even the idea. I think I tweeted about this, but the idea of like an, a trial emulation framework has not entered that space, even though everyone's trying to use EMR data and all this stuff. And so I think there is a there is a a wall of like some epi methods for whatever reason. I have no idea because they're cool. Just have not reached the clinical space and I think you do need some additional either a master's or or PhD for those of us who are a little cuckoo for cocoa puffs like me you know to to try to even just like get a hold of them not that fancy methods are always the key but I don't know I I think there's a lot of questions that can again that can be answered in a better way if people understood the methods a little bit more and understood that epi is just more than cohort studies, you know, it's, it's just not that it, it, there's a lack of understanding. All right. Well, so then I'm what, what I think you need to do is you need to record a response, a standard response for when people say to you that observational studies can only be hypothesis generating, that we just tack on to the end of this. And then anytime anybody says that to you, you just refer them to the podcast and they'll just say, I'm not going to have this conversation anymore. See the podcast. Yeah, see podcast here. I mean, I don't blame them. Uh, I don't know. I complain about it a lot, but I think it's just, I think there's just such a focus on the biomedical framework, like drug development. And I don't know, I'm a public health person. So I'm like, it's not, it's not all it, bro. There's other (laughs) stuff. (laughs) Uh, That's fantastic. All right. Well, I, so mine, I actually have a, a, an old study that I, I wanted to talk about that was published in the BMJ, I believe. Let me just double check that it was BMJ 1991, I think. Oh, wow. And it was, yeah, it's not 1991 because they're referring to 1994 in the paper. So it's got to be mid to, oh, no, sorry, it's 2002. I'm totally wrong. That was published by uh, Douglas Carroll and colleagues. And it answers a question that we have talked about on this podcast before in, in a couple of times which is the the question of do admissions to hospitals increase, particularly admissions for heart attacks, increase during high 
pressure, no, that's not the right word, like high interest sporting events. And so what they did was they looked at hospital admissions around the World Cup when England was playing Argentina and it went to a, a penalty shootout. And the reason that I thought, like, I, so I've, I've, I've heard studies like this done before. This, you know, that in and of itself isn't all that novel. But what I thought was interesting about this one was they specifically chose this game, presumably partly because they're, you know, English football fans, but also because this game went to penalty kicks, which you can, you know, you can imagine, like you're you're watching like the the Super Bowl and, you know, Tom Brady's in the Super Bowl. So, you know, it's going to be a, a blowout. They're going to win like, you know, 50 to nothing because it's Tom Brady, right? You know, actually, that's not true. Tom so Brady's, stressful. Tom's Super Bowls have always been actually close. But my, my point being like, uh, you know, a blowout's not going to be a particularly stressful game. And so even though lots of people are watching it, it's probably not going to induce as many heart attacks if that's really the the if the hypothesis is correct. But here's a case where, you know, like you have other games surrounding it that are not as stressful. But then you get to the this particular match that's a, a highly watched game, highly watched match, excuse me, on the pitch. And you you know, it's tense because it's gotten to penalty kicks, which is like my least favorite thing about about football, soccer, whatever you want to call it, but it, it is certainly tense. And, you know, so like the, uh, not, you know, need to go into the methods or anything like that, but they did in fact find an increase in hospital admissions for MIs around the time of, of that, that were different from, you know, sort of before and after in comparable time periods. So it does suggest that, you know, you got to be you got to be careful when you're when you're watching those high stress sporting events. But I just thought it was an interesting take on that kind of study. So, do you all do you all are you all sports fans? Yes. Oh. Your, no, that's a no from Sarah. <laughs> uh, Michelle, what what's your what do you follow and what what's your team? Okay, so I mean, I'm a huge basketball fan. I think I mentioned this on Lisa's podcast. Shout yeah. out, Lisa. Love you. But yeah, Lakers fan she, through and she, through. She's not listening to this. <laughs> yes, she is. She okay, listens to every episode. Sure thing. So Lakers fan through and through. And then when I married my husband, we like the vows were basically you're a Laker fan. And then in exchange, I will also be a Steelers fan because he was a Steelers fan. Um, and yes. Then... <laughs> I... I feel like I wished we had had this conversation before I asked you to be on the Oh, am I podcast. fired? As a as a as a Celtics fan, lifelong Celtics fan, that Oh Matt oh is my God. not okay. That's not okay. But you I'll know just what? myself out. I'll just I'm gonna I'm gonna allow it for now. But uh Thank you. that is that is a distressing way <laughs> to end what was otherwise a fantastic podcast. Oh my gosh. Sorry guys. That's all right. Well, so that is that is definitely the place we're going to end it. Uh, I want to thank both Michelle and Sarah for being on the podcast. This was was a real treat. Thank you so much. Thanks. It's a lot of fun. So if you have any feedback on this or any other episode, you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at at Pop Healthy X, or you can tweet me at, at Prof Matt Fox or Don at, at Dethea One or Chris at ID.Gill or I forgot to ask you both for your Twitter handles. Michelle, do you, your, what's your Twitter handle? Oh, at Michelle underscore Kaunka. And Sarah? Let me let me double check. It's at SF Ackley. <laughs> my, my, my original Twitter handle was something like 
MFOX1379261. And I had to change it because it definitely looked like I was a, a bot of some kind. But anyway, you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www pophealthyx.org. We want to thank Leslie Talali, an assistant dean of lifelong learning at the BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound, editing, and finding long-lost colleagues on the podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you will download our next episode.